Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity, as being yourselves also in the body. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. Let your conversation be without covetousness, and be content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to consider the subject of covetousness and contentment, we pray that you would bless us, Lord, to be honest before you and uh, before one another even. May we, Father, come to grips with the reality of life in your kingdom, what it means, and all that's involved in it. Lord, we cannot do this apart from grace that you give us. So we're asking, Father, for faith, to believe what you have said, and to live our lives accordingly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Oftentimes, the things that a writer writes last in his letter or last in his career is the most important. It's the things that are weighing on his mind, and he wants to make sure that those to whom he has ministered remember these most important things. And the writer of Hebrews, as he comes to to close, as he calls it, a short letter, has what might be considered some miscellaneous commandments and encouragements, and they, they may seem to be isolated, but I would say to you that they are very much interrelated. For us to love our brothers, for us to be hospitable, in verse 2, and for us to remember those that are bound and suffer with them, for us to commit ourselves to marriage and, uh, and, and faithful, a life of faithfulness to a partner, takes the same grace that it does for us to live our lives without covetousness. And the same thing is said that is the basis of all of this is that the Lord is our helper in verse 6. And we will not fear what man shall do unto me. Now, I want to leave you uh, today with the idea of being content with such things as you have. How many times have you ever seen an advertisement on television that says, we want you at our company to be content with exactly what you have. You'll probably never see a commercial from Walmart or any other place that sells things to, um, to that effect. The idea that our society runs on, our economy runs on, is that people must be induced to believe that they have a need that they don't really have, and that if they don't buy a certain product or a certain service, that they cannot be happy. And what has happened in our society over the last hundred years, it started earlier than that, but it has really, really escalated in our culture uh, in the last generation or two, is the idea that I've got to have more stuff. And if I don't have more stuff, I can't be happy. I cannot be content. And if you went back three or four generations in our culture to our great-grandfather's times, the things that made them happy would absolutely not satisfy us today. 
because we have been taught to believe, we have been inundated with the message that we can't be happy with what made them happy. We have got to have things. We have got to have possessions. We've got to have money. We have got to have the latest technology. I raise my hand on that one. Or else we can't be content. And really what this is, is a manifestation of God's kingdom and the warfare of that kingdom against the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of darkness and of our enemy tells us that we cannot be satisfied in God. We cannot be satisfied with just Christ. And so it's a manifestation of this war of God against mammon in our lives. Jesus Christ said you cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve God and mammon. One will predominate over the other. And I would say to you, as one who has spent time and effort seeking satisfaction and seeking joy and contentment in a lot of wrong places, including the possession of things, Oh, if I could just get that one more commentary set, Brother Matt, I would be happy. Or if I had a certain kind of car, or if I had a certain balance in my bank account, I would be happy. And what I have found, and I think what a lot of God's people have found throughout the centuries, is that when you fill your life with stuff, it never ever satisfies and you will always want more. It doesn't matter if you could have everything that you want right now in the way of treasures and mammon. If you could have job security, if you could have a guaranteed income, if you could have whatever it is that you think your heart desires, The instant you got it, you would want more. That's just the nature of the way things work. I remember when Betty and I were looking at our first house. I thought that house at 4781 Violet was the loveliest house. It was the most beautiful house that I had ever, almost ever seen. Now, it wasn't literally true, but as far as me having possession of it and being able to live there, I thought that was really, really an astounding house. And as I've said many times before, it takes about six months of house payments and uh, finding things wrong with the plumbing and finding things wrong that have to be, and having to paint it, and, and I start being discontent somewhat with that. I bought cars the same way. And what the difficult lesson is for us to learn is this lesson that the Hebrew writer is writing to us. Be content with what you have. Now, I don't know how that strikes you, but you might be thinking, well... Does that mean that I shouldn't work? Does it mean I shouldn't save? Does it mean I shouldn't have objectives? No, it doesn't mean any of that. But I want us to get down to some brass tacks and just talk about what it is that makes us content. I want to read a um, a passage from Dr. Richard Swenson's book on margin. I highly, highly recommend this book. And he has got a good bit to say about contentment. And he says this, I believe Mrs. Nugent 
by Alan, or Anne. That's a fictitious name, he says, but it's a real lady. Uh, can claim a rifle championship with Paul, or companionship with Paul. Though she lost everything, she has all things in one, that is Christ. They have taken her husband, her home, and her belongings, yet her contentment they cannot take. Mrs. An's husband was a pastor in Vietnam. When their church was closed by police, she was thrown into prison. Without official papers, she and her children were forced to live on a balcony outside an apartment. Yet her faith was forged a sanctuary yet her faith has forged a sanctuary out of her surroundings from which she greets us. My dear friends, she writes. You know around here we are experiencing hardships. But we thank the Lord. He is comforting us and caring for us in every way. When we experience misfortune, adversity, distress, and hardship, only then do we see the real blessing of the Lord poured down on us in such a way that we cannot contain it. We have been obliged recently to leave our modest apartment, and for over two months we have lived on a balcony. The rain has been beating down and soaking us. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we are forced to gather our blankets and run to seek refuge in a stairwell. You know what I do then? I laugh and I praise the Lord. Because we can still take shelter in the stairwell. I think of how many people are experiencing much worse hardships than I am. Then I remember the words of the Lord. To the poor, O Lord, you are a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat. And I am really comforted. Our Father is the one who, according to the Scriptures, does not break the bruised reed nor put out the flickering lamp. He is the one who looks after the orphan and the widow. He is the one who brings blessings and peace to numberless people. I do not know what words to use, in order to describe the love that the Lord has shown our family. I can only bow my knee and my heart and offer to the Lord words of deepest thanks and praise. Although we have lost our house and our possessions, we have not lost the Lord, and He is enough. With the Lord I have everything. The only thing I would fear is losing his blessing. Could I ask you and our friends in the churches abroad to continue to pray for me that I will faithfully follow the Lord and serve him regardless of what the circumstances may be? As far as my husband is concerned, I was able to visit him this past summer. We had a 20-minute conversation that brought us great joy. I greet you with my love, Mrs. Nugent Thai An. I wish she were here to teach us a lesson on contentment. The Apostle Paul tells us that our conversation should be without covetousness that we should be content with such things as we have. He tells us what the great enemy of our contentment is, and that is covetousness. The enemy of our contentment is covetousness. Let your conversation be without covetousness. Why is it that we're covetous? Why is it that we give ourselves to the accumulation of false security, I will call it, through the possession of wealth, of income, of a house, of a husband, of a family, of a wife? We do that in place of God. We do that in place of trusting the Lord 
God of heaven and earth. It's a war against God and mammon, according to Matthew 6, 24. And it's a matter of our hearts. Which God will we serve? Paul said in 1 Timothy 6, 9, that they who would be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now, I don't think that Paul is saying that those that would have would be multimillionaires fall into this. He's not just talking about people that would be exorbitantly rich. He's talking about people that put their trust in riches, in money, in possessions, that find their contentment and their joy, and they, they, they find their security in that. And he warns us, and he says, and let me just say this in passing, interrupt myself. By 99% of the humans that have ever lived on earth, you and I are unbelievably rich. People for thousands of years all over this earth could not possibly conceive in generations past how we live today. So Paul is not saying... You know, if he was saying, if he was talking about people that want to be rich, as we think of it, that's us because we're there. We are that. We are the rich. So he's not talking about that, but he's talking about people that are desiring riches as their security. And what that does is it puts us in a position of great Temptation, it draws our heart away from God, it deadens us to the things of God, and it does not make for our contentment. We fall into temptation and snare and many foolish and hurtful lusts that drown men in destruction. James put it this way, You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Now, I don't believe he's saying you don't have a Cadillac because you ask not. What he's saying is that you don't really have in your heart what you're after because you're looking in the wrong place. And the way you are seek the way the people to whom James was writing was seeking the things that they really desire would lead them to all manner of sin. Have you ever been around someone that we thought was a overachiever that was willing to step on anyone in order to get to get advancement? Covetousness. We have an innate, built-in desire toward covetousness. And we look at other people. We look at our neighbors. They get a new car. We look at our neighbors. They buy a new house. And we look at our society and we see how people dress. It is absolutely, now I'm a, I'm a, I, you have to understand, I'm a just a solid old country boy. Went to engineering school, so I'm kind of geeky, left brain, uh, all kinds of stuff like this. But it is amazing to this country boy that somebody in Paris can utter a decree that this year everybody will wear purple rainbows or yellow butterflies And people around the world bow their knee in submission to that and start going out to pennies or somewhere to buy yellow polka dot, silk, whatever. 
I don't understand that. Have you ever heard of the term slave of fashion? That's what that's slavery. That's not that's not desiring to serve the Lord or please Him. That's that's bondage. Now I'm not saying we need to dress slovenly and look ugly, and I I'm not I'm not trying to tell us that we shouldn't uh, care for our appearance. But I, I will say some more things about that in just a minute, the Lord willing. But God has told us in Proverbs to not fret ourselves because of evil men, neither be envious at the wicked. We have this great allure for riches so we can buy these things that somebody tells us we should have. And that if you could... Another thing that astounds me, how many times have you ever seen fat, ugly, skinny, thin, any kind, any kind other than just absolutely beautiful people on beer commercials? They don't have real skinny people, and they don't have real big ugly people. They have everybody on a beer commercial is man. They look they they're in shape. They look beautiful. They're cool. They're around the pool drinking their beer, and it's just they've got it. I mean, that's the life. And if you'll just drink beer number X, your life will be like that. If you're a guy, you'll have a beautiful woman. If you're a girl, you'll have a handsome guy. If you'll just drink this certain beer. It works, apparently. Because those guys, the the beer companies continue investing millions and millions in that. Telling you that message, giving it to you. Jesus said that riches are deceitful. He that received the seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. You know what I think? would be a good idea for each one of us is it I think it'd be a good idea for us to try to remove all commercials from our lives. But at least when you hear a commercial and listen, I I need to be balanced here. There are commercials that are beneficial, that are informative. And I'm not, I should, should not paint with just a broad brush and just say all commercials. But I, I'll say this. Every time we see a commercial, we need to think about what's being said to us. And we need to evaluate it. Because there is a deceitfulness to riches that is very powerful in our culture today, each one of us is affected by it. The writer of Proverbs, Solomon, said, Labor not to be rich, cease from thine own wisdom. Isn't that interesting? Your wisdom says, get rich. Your wisdom says, you need a lot of money in the bank to take care of your security in the future. God says, Labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Think of what it meant for Jesus to walk through the shores, along the shores of Galilee or and through Israel. And as he's walking by, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. As, he, he, as he's just walking by, apparently, I, I've often wondered how much advance, how much advance interaction that Jesus had with these people, his disciples. I, I, I don't know. We're not told. But listen to what Mark says in Mark 1.16, 
Now as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. Now put yourself there. For they were, whatever your occupation is, teachers, writers, nurses, doctors, engineers, they were fishers. That's how they got their income. And Jesus said unto them, Come ye after me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. And straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. Well, what about my kids? What about my retirement? What about... My next meal. Jesus, you want me to follow you even if it means giving up my job? He did. In Mark chapter 2, verse 14, he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, just... Ask yourself this, whatever it is that you're doing, if you're a student, if you're looking for a job, if you have a job, what is the relationship between that job and your service to Christ? Now, I'm not, as you'll, as you'll hear hopefully in just a few minutes, I'm not trying to discourage you from working I'm not trying to encourage. In fact, I want to be an encouragement and to study. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But I, I, the key thing is this: Why are we doing the things we're doing? That's where the key is. So, the writer of Hebrews says that we have this joyful duty of opposing covetousness. And he says that we are to be content with such things as we have. What is contentment? What does it mean to be content with the things that we have? Well, this is my homespun definition. It is a profound satisfaction and peace with where God has placed us and the things He has given us. It is wanting the things we have and being satisfied with what we have. And only wanting more if we can clearly see how it will benefit the Lord and His people. Jesus did not seek His own glory. Again, we read recently of of his uh, prayer as he is approaching his crucifixion. And he said, Lord, if this cup, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. And so Jesus was, he says in John 8, 50, he says, I seek not mine own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. And then we have Paul's statement about what love is in 1 Corinthians 13, where among many other things he says, love seeketh not her own. Now, in this matter of contentment and our desiring to make progress and our desiring to better ourselves, let me encourage us to imitate our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want something, if you want deliverance from a situation you're in, or if you want to make progress in your job, or you want to further yourself in your education. Make sure that you're doing it for the Lord's sake and for His glory. 
And if you cannot say that I am seeking not my own, but I'm seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, if you cannot say that in all good conscience, let me encourage you to examine yourselves and your motives to see whether you're doing it for your own good and your glory. And that is to serve mammon. Jesus says this in Matthew 6, 25, that Brother Matt preached to us recently. Listen, listen, these are penetrating words. Take no thought for your life. None. I think he means take no anxious thought for your life. Surely the Lord did not mean for us to take no thought whatsoever. But he says be anxious for nothing. But in every, Paul says be anxious for nothing, but in everything through prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. But Jesus says take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on is not life more than meat and body the body more than raiment. Now, John the Baptist was surrounded by people that one time he came, they surrounded him and they wanted to be baptized by him. And uh, they came and they would uh, ask him things like, what should I do? John. And in Luke chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, he said unto them, uh, these are the publicans, the tax collectors, exact no more than that which is appointed you. In other words, they are in the habit of not only uh, exacting or requiring from the people what the government said, but also a little bit extra for their back pocket. And John the Baptist says, if you're going to enter the kingdom of heaven, You've got to be honest in your dealings with taxes. And you're not to take more than you are supposed to take. And then the soldiers came to him and demanded of him, saying, What shall we do? And he said unto them, Do violence to no man, neither accuse any falsely, and be content with your wages. Woe. Be content with your wages. I remember, I don't know how it is these days. It's been a long time since I was in the workforce. But I remember the constant refrain almost of workers, of fellow workers where I worked in multiple locations was to complain about their wages. And that is ungodly, it's inappropriate, and it's saying, to, it's saying to our own consciences and it's saying to other people, we really don't believe God's going to take care of us. Now again, I am not saying that we shouldn't prepare, we shouldn't work to have our income and our wages increased, but I, again, I want to say a few things about that in just a few moments. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 19. Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned. Now notice this. This is not something that comes naturally. It's something that has to be cultivated. It's a course you have to take. It's things that you have to study. Paul says, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased And I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, 
both to abound and to suffer need. I believe that gave rise to this next statement that he makes, that I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Dearly beloved, we cannot be content in this way apart from the grace that only Christ can give us. But somehow, when Paul was beaten unjustly, whipped, suffering great pain, and in a Philippian jail, he could sing praises to God at midnight with ultimate contentment, joyful contentment. You know what I think we think sometimes contentment is? Content is what I will be when I get everything that I want. And as long as I don't have any needs that are not being met, I'm not hungry, I'm not lacking in clothing, I've got friends, and as long as I've got those things, I can be content. And it's hard for us to conceive of how could we be content if things aren't going the way we thought they would or should, or that we long for, or perhaps that we prayed for and worked for for years and years, perhaps. You can imagine any number of situations that you could place yourself in that would be difficult. We're in the time of transition, and a time of trial in our congregation. And some of our families are being, uh, have some pressure put. Individuals are in maybe some bewilderment about what is going to happen. Lord, I thought that things were going to turn out a different way. I thought that you were going to use me or you were going to do uh, certain things. And it's not so. Look at Paul. Paul said, I can be content in God, alone, in Christ, in my Lord, even if I'm out on, the, out on a plank in the middle of a stormy sea, suffering shipwreck, even if I'm being beaten multiple times unjustly and unfairly and even against the law, I can be content even if all that are in Asia forsake me and go back on their word that they gave to me. I can be content with bread and water. I can be content. But... It's only through Christ that strengthens me. Now, he does not deny the role of material wealth and its blessing. Now, look with me how he follows that up in verse 14 of Philippians chapter 4. Notwithstanding, now, now look, look, let's, let's get this. Paul says, I, I'm happy no matter what. But yet I'm, I'm thankful and I'm glad that you sent money. It was good. Thank you, Philippians, for sending me some money to buy some bread. Even if you hadn't, I could have been content, but you've done well that you did that. But I, what I want us to see is the motive that Paul had and the motive that he had for the Philippians. Now, verse 14, Notwithstanding ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. So we're not to look at a missionary or somebody somewhere that's, that, that doesn't have enough money and they're suffering and they're hungry and they're in prison and we're not to, we're not to go over there and say, well be warmed and comforted, brother, and be content with such things as you have. You know, the Apostle Paul, he was content in the, in the Philippian prison. You be content too. That's not what we're getting at. And the same principle is this. 
I'm not, Paul is not saying, Jesus is not saying, I'm not saying to you, oh, you're in this job where you're making a pitiful salary and you can barely feed your family. Just be content there. Don't, don't try to better yourself. Be content with your wages and just stay right there for the rest of your life. That's not what Paul is saying. That's not what I'm saying. But look at, let's, let's reason through why it was such a wonderful thing for the Philippians to send Paul this gift of money. In verse 15, Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica you sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift. There's the key. Paul wasn't desiring a gift for him personally. But I desire that fruit may abound to your account. Now, our cynicism, our modern cynicism today, makes that almost impossible for us to believe that. Paul is suffering. The Philippians send him a gift. And Paul actually receives it and says, Well, you know what? I could have been content without it. But you know why I'm glad that I've got it? Because your account with Christ has been improved. Our cynicism says, yes, sure, Paul. Sure. I believe him in it. In verse 18, I have all and abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which you sent from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now here's what I want us to take away from this. You sending Paul a gift is good. You earning the money to send Paul a gift is good. Paul receiving it is good. If Everything is done for the glory of God. If it's done for the glory of God. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is going to tell us to be content even if we are in slavery. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1, Let as many servants as are under the yoke, that is, their slaves, count their masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, and surmisings, evil disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. From such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be therewith content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in perdition and destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while they coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And he says, Paul, you're a man of God. Flee these things. Now let me um, just take a few moments. Uh, we've gone long. I want us to know that contentment 
that Paul is talking about and that Christ is talking about, the whole Bible is talking about it, contentment does not remove initiative. Contentment is not the enemy of initiative. What it does is it puts the emphasis for initiative somewhere else other than your selfish desires. It places the impetus for initiative upon the glory of God. Mike, do you really need an iPad in order to glorify the Lord? I have a feeling this message may come back to haunt me. Look, work, work as unto the Lord is good in itself. Why? Because God has commanded it. He has given us the earth to tend and to, to subdue. He has commanded that we do it. He's commanded that we uh, serve other people. And He's told us things like this in Ecclesiastes 9.10, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it with thy might. For there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the grave, whether thou goest. God appreciates excellence. God loves for His people to be productive. God commands us to be industrious. To glorify Him. Not in order to accumulate riches in which we can trust and find our satisfaction. But because work is a good glorifying thing to God in itself. And we're commanded to do it wholeheartedly and with excellence. Paul said this same thing in the New Testament in Colossians 3.17. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now listen, you know, just think with me a moment. If you and I work like this in whatever God's called us to do, and we did it unto the Lord, we did it unselfishly, we did it with excellence, we did it with all of our might, what is usually, or let me put it this way, what is many times the byproduct of work like that? A promotion? A good book that somebody buys? If you write a good book? Whatever your job is, if you're doing it this way, as unto the Lord, it tends toward riches. And the Scriptures say, if you may be made rich, use it rather. I may have confused a passage with being made free. But the idea is the same. God is not opposed to you being wealthy if it's done from the right motive and it's achieved through the right way. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he had been dishonest. And when he met Christ, you remember what he said? He said, I'm going to give everything back that I have taken and I'm going to multiply it. How many times was it? Three or four times? He was going to multiply and give back what he had taken. And what did Jesus say? This day has salvation come into this house. There's the divide. He didn't tell Zacchaeus to go give everything away he had. What he was saying was, 
there is now a fundamentally different view in this man about riches. He has now had his heart weaned away from them. He is no longer the slave to mammon. He's willing to give it away if he has taken it wrongfully. It's only in this way that we will ever achieve true contentment. Whatever it is that God calls us to do, if we are doing it for His honor and His glory, not for our own purposes and selfish interests, we will have then a resulting contentment that the world can never give. It doesn't matter how much they advertise and tell us that if we just have this product, we will be happy the rest of our lives. God says that we are to pursue contentment and to be content with the things we have because we know the one who has said, the Lord is my helper and I will not fear what man will do unto me. We know that Lord who is our helper, and so we will not fear what man shall do unto us. That is the secret of contentment. So let me leave you and encourage you with pursuing that and forsaking riches, forsaking the uh, message that our culture is constantly giving us that we've got to have bigger, we've got to have more, We've got to have fancier. We've got to have uh, just all kinds of things that never, ever bring true contentment. Uh, So let's encourage one another with these words. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would bless us through the changes that you call us to go through to be content with the place you have put us and what you have ordained for us. Help us to be industrious, Father, but only unto you. And only as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Lord, help us to remember the example of many saints, including the Apostle Paul, but then those that have followed in the centuries since then. Lord, many, many of our brothers and sisters have been called to give up everything that they possessed on earth, loved ones, possessions, And this sister in Vietnam, Lord, we praise you for her great faith. Lord, we almost weep thinking about what she has that we don't have. And we thank you for it. And we pray, Father, that you would work in us that same grace. Help us to take our eyes off of everything around us, even the people that are closest to us and the possessions that you have given us. Help us, Lord, to turn our eyes toward you and be content with you and what you give us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.